0: Welcome to the limits. I'm Jay Williams. Let's talk about trendsetters. Yeah, we all know them—people who change fashion because they took risk. You know how that old line rolls better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And the one thing they all have in common is that they stopped asking if they should do something and just did it.
1: I, I try to approach everything like that. When I when people are like, no, that's not going to work, I'm like, but why not? Why why can't we do that?
0: <laughs> Bobby Hundreds has been setting trends in streetwear for decades. He and his best friend, Ben Hundreds, and no, they're not related, both used their global brand, the Hundreds, for their last name, Genius. And when everyone else was rocking suits in their law firm, no, not these two, they bonded over their love for Nike Air Force Ones. It was then that Bobby stopped asking for permission and decided to pursue his passion. And that passion led them to be one of the biggest names in streetwear today, the Hundreds. Not an easy thing to do for a kid whose parents had just immigrated from Korea to the States. But setting a trend, it's never easy. And once Bobby started, he never stopped. Here's my conversation with Bobby Hundreds. Can I call you B? Is that allowed? Like, what's your nickname? First off,
1: Um, B's fine. I mean, my legal name is Robert, so Bobby's already a nickname, and then Bobby Hundreds is not my government name either, so B, whatever, B-Hundo, I don't
0: know. Don't call me that. (laughs) All right, I won't call you that one, even though I was like, I like that one. Um, (laughs) So I know as a kid, you were big into drawing and skateboarding, right? But I also know sometimes parents aren't as excited about those things as their kids are. So were you going against the grain, or did your parents actually support you and encourage you to do what you loved?
1: Well, they didn't love it. (laughs) My parents are the Korean-American immigrants of the late 70s, right? So... They come here with nothing, like just nothing in their pockets and figure it out along the way. And are all of this this onslaught of American culture. They're watching their three boys move into adolescence and there's drugs all over the house and there's, um, you know, like (laughs) their son is skateboarding and failing in his classes. And all he wants to do is just spray paint and draw with paint markers and black books. (laughs) So that's all I ever wanted to do was do art and it wasn't until uh 2019 i would say when i published my memoir and um they came to my book release at the grove in los angeles and it was packed out it was the third biggest book release they'd ever had at the grove next to gene simmons and uh, i think like one of paul or something like that it was packed with people and my parents were like why are all these people here?
0: (laughs) I'm a pretty big deal, mom and dad, just let you guys know.
1: You know, but it took uh, at that point, you know, 16 years for them to kind of come around. And it was nice that they did. The validation was nice. But I think I had gotten far past that at, at that point and was doing it not because I needed
0: anyone's permission, but my own. You did end up becoming a big time designer, but let's go back a bit because you actually dropped art to pursue what your parents wanted you to. You went to law school and then decided that art was just a hobby. So what happened in law school that made you change your mind?
1: At that point still in my own life, I believed that it was not just an improbability but an impossibility that I'd ever make a career out of my creative interests. And that's something that I had been conditioned to believe by my parents, by my teachers, Mm. by the media, Mm. right? Like, uh, by the larger system, I'm looking out into TV, film, I'm reading magazines about fashion and clothing, and I didn't see my face anywhere out there. I didn't see my story Mm. represented anywhere on those pages or on the early internet screens, And so, in my mind, I had conditioned myself, and greater society had told me enough times that you'll never make it, being an artist, do something sensible with your life. Otherwise, you're going to starve to death and die in a gutter somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And so, I went to law school. You know, I'm argumentative enough. I love debating people. (laughs) And I can have a consistent, steady career. And at nights... I can return back to my art. You know, I can come home and work on art as a hobby. But I quickly learned when I was in law school, I was like, this is going so much against my nature. You know, it was like making me sick uh, to sit there every day and study the law, knowing that I was just wasting my life. And every day that went by in law school, I just became more impassioned to following my creative path. And I met Ben, my business partner, Ben, who's been my best friend ever since, in law school. And he felt the same. (laughs) We connected because we were both wearing streetwear at the time. And this was in the early 2000s when really not a lot of people were wearing Supreme and A-Life, which is what we were wearing. And he was wearing black Jordan 4s. (laughs) And uh, I was wearing these black AF1s with like custom Louis Vuitton. And we were just looking at each other and we were like, wow, like you get it, you know, like, where did you get your shoes? where did you get your shirt? And I was just like, you know, I really want to do this. And he's like, I believe in it. You know, I want to help build the business. You know, I know how to make money. <laughs> and I was like, "You yeah, know, let's do this thing together. And so um, we started the project in the summer of 2003. At the same time, I was interning at the LA Superior Court. And the first day I show up, I'm in my, you know, oversized dad's suit.
0: and <laughs> I can't even imagine you in an oversized dad's suit considering what you do. <laughs> oh my
1: <doing>. gosh, ridiculous. <laughs> I really wish I had more. We didn't take a lot of photos back then. I wish I had photos. Um, I'm sure there's somewhere out there. But, you know, I'm sitting down and my research attorney who I'm working with is a man named Abe Edelman. He's a brilliant man. And um, a lot of people kind of overlooked him because he was... Wow always wearing just baggy sweats, an unkempt beard that was grayed. He never showered. And um, he was connected to a bag where, uh, you know, that smelled like urine because he was suffering from cancer. And um, so he kind of, there was a little bit of lore around Abe in the courthouse because everyone knew he was the smartest man in the building. So smart that he was like very arrogant, cocky, and abrasive as a person. But he literally memorized the, the law library, wow. and I really took a liking to him. He took a liking to me, and he was starting to mentor me. And we, you know, I was interning for a judge, but you know, Abe was the guy that worked with me every day as as overseeing all the the interns in the courthouse. And we worked together all summer long. And the very last few days, um, I would say actually the last couple weeks of our internship, he's kind of stopped coming around and um, he was getting pretty sick by that time. And uh, so I was really surprised and happy to see when I show up for my last day of, of the internship and he's sitting there on this long, long bench and all of the other students are lined up and he's giving them exit interviews and talking them through their time in the courthouse and how well they'd done. Mm. And I'm last to go. And I'm sitting down, I'm like, hey, man, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, you know, I'm hanging in there. And uh, he's just like, you know, how how's your time? And I was like, man, I learned a lot, like at a blast. And he's just like, you know what, you're one of the smartest and brightest interns I've ever had. And I was just like, wow, really? He's just like, yeah, you're gonna have it all, man. He's like, you're gonna be really successful doing this. And I was like, Perfect, you know. He's like, You're gonna have all the cars, you're gonna have all the houses, you're gonna have all the women, and I was just like, Perfect, like plural,
0: plural, like
1: (laughs) you're saying all the right things, you know.
0: I'm buying in.
1: Yeah, and we're I'm just busting up, laughing, and I'm like, Yes, Abe, like, let's go, let's do this. And he's like, But you should never do this. Wow. And I just sat there going, Wait, what you hold I'm sorry, I misunderstood. You just told me all the cars, all the he's just like, No, no, I know what I said, but you should never do this. And I was just like, why? And he's just like, your heart's not in this, Bobby. And I'm like, no, of course it is. What do you mean? I'm busting my ass off. I'm working my, you know, my butt off sitting here every day with you. I'm here late in the courthouse working on all this stuff. My memos, blah, blah, blah. And he's just like, no, no. He's like, hey, we go to lunch every single day. And we sit down. And what do we talk about? And I was like, we talk about work. And he's like, no. He's like, you take out your black book, you sit it down in front of me, you open up all the pages, you talk about these designs you're working on (laughs) and you're talking about the hundreds, which wasn't even a a concrete idea at the time. I think I had just come up with the name. And he's just like, man, I don't want you to spend your entire life doing something that you don't truly love because look at me. He's like, I'm in my forties and I'm dying of cancer. And he's like, for him... He was meant to do do the law. He was genuinely passionate and cared for, and he was great at it. And he's like, I don't have a single regret. He's like, I loved my life, and I loved the work that I got to do every day, but it won't be enough for you. But that day when I left the courthouse, a switch turned in my head, and it was because it was the first time that anyone in my life had given me permission to do what I really wanted to do and what I loved. And that goes such a long way from a mentor, a, a, a big brother figure or anyone in your life that you, you have a, a hearty respect for. When they come in and they give you permission, right? And it wasn't just about him giving me permission, but him giving me permission gave me the permission to give myself permission. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm like, why can't I do this? Everyone was lying. Everyone was wrong. Here's someone that I trust and has built a successful career in life and is now coming to me saying, why not? Why couldn't you do this? You love it so much. And I turned 40 over the pandemic right at March 2020 when the world is shutting down. I woke up one day and I was 40 years old. And he said it, you know, he said it on the bench. He's At the time I was 23 and he's just like, one day you're going to wake up and be 40 like me and you could be dying of cancer. And is this how you want to spend your life? And I woke up 40 years old and I just sat there in bed just thinking about him going like, wow, that went in a heartbeat. Like that went in in that time just disappeared. And I'm so grateful that he gave me that permission, that license to do this because I got everything I, I could have ever dreamt of. Like 19-year-old, 23-year-old Bobby just high-fiving me like, bro, preach, like you get to do this every day for a living? Are you kidding me? Like we made it. So I'm just so grateful that I had that. And I try to share that story as much as possible. And I don't mean to sound like a broken record with this story, but I do it because if... It's any consolation or support, inspiration for them to pursue what they really want to do because anything is possible. Now in this time, more than ever, because of how much transition is is happening in this space, in this world, in this culture, anything is possible. All rules are broken. All the systems that were in place, we are realizing we're flimsy and, and completely constructed, right? And so we can do whatever we want you can begin today i would suggest you do so and uh you know let's see where you are a year three years or as i stand almost 20 years later
0: i want you to listen to this go right now and chase your dreams do it and if you aren't sure you can after the break bobby breaks down how to fake it till you make it you don't want to miss this this is the limits from npr i'm jay williams This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Express Business Platinum Card, which is packed with features like 1.5 times membership rewards points on big purchases and in select business categories, over $1,000 in statement credits per year with select business partners, and five times membership rewards points on flights and prepaid hotels booked through amextravel.com. Get the card built for business by American Express, Terms and point cap apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash beplatinum. I got to tell you, Bobby, a lot of my friends, they've been extremely successful, but there's been a little bit of this fake it until you make it strategy that they had at the beginning stages. And I heard that you talk about something called the black tarp strategy. Can you explain <laughs> to yeah. my listeners what the black tarp yeah. strategy is?
1: yeah. Fake it till you make it, man. I'm almost 20 years into my career. I still fake it till I make it every single day. Exactly. I fake the funk. I fake it. Uh, Fake it till you break it.
0: (laughs) Or you can call it speaking it into existence. You can call it that as well. Speaking
1: it into existence. I love that. Um, Yeah, we were doing trade shows very early on. There was a big one called Magic in the early 2000s. And they were dominated by these Urban labels had talked about the fat farms. You know, they were putting together $2 million build-outs into their convention booths. Like, this is how much money was circulating in that space at the time. At that time, they realized that there was this kind of burgeoning, independent fashion scene coming together and these, like, artist-driven t-shirt labels. And so they put together a little section called the High Five Campground. And it was really kitschy. It kind of looked like a little camp setup. And they gave you a rack. And you could sit there with two folding chairs. And um, the buyers from the big stores, like JCPenney and Bloomingdale's and the department stores were walking around seeing these huge booths. But then they also wanted to know what was next, right? Mm Because fashion is so hyperactive and cyclical. So they're walking through the High Five campgrounds every day. And you know, they're kind of passing us, right? They're like, We don't, never, we haven't heard of this before, and we didn't have much to show for ourselves, to be honest. We had 10 t shirts that were wrinkled, uh, just really bad art, <laughs> like really, really bad art, um, raw and true, but bad art, and just Ben and I, you know, we don't look cool. And everyone's passing us by, every buy. And we're, like, trying to stop them. Hey, take a look. And they're like, yeah, we haven't heard of you. And we're like, you know, what can we do here, right, to make us attractive? You know, and it was really about kind of calculating the power play. Like, who's in power here? Do we really want to be in those stores? Mm. And when we sat and thought about it, we're like, we don't want to be in those stores. You want to be J.C. JCPenney? That's where brands go to die. Like that's mm-hmm. at the end of our life, you know? So we drove to a local Kmart in Vegas and bought this huge black tarp. It was like a uh, just a little, one of those plastic tarps. We came back the next morning early before the show started and we covered the booth. And so then buyers would walk by and they're looking at us and they're like, you guys not set up yet? We're like, Oh no no we are. Huh. They're like, oh, what do you? Can I see what's under the tarp? And we're like, where are you from? And they'd be like, oh, we're from, uh, you know, Robinson's May or whatever May Company or whatever the department stores were at the time Nordstroms. Brilliant. And we were like, nah, we don't really want to sell to you, sorry. Brilliant. And that really piqued their interest because. For the first time, someone had told them no. Mm -hmm. And we'd watch these buyers get upset. They'd laugh. They'd smile. They'd say, okay, uh, I'll try again later. Or someone would be like, who do you think you are? And that whole week, I think we showed the line to two stores. Wow. You know? And one of them was a store called True in San Francisco, our friend Mike Brown. And True is a streetwear pioneer. He rolls up with his crew. He's like, you guys... He's like, yeah, I heard you guys were assholes. And we're like, (laughs) (laughs) Ben and I are not. um, You know, I think we're pretty approachable, nice guys. But we had to fake the funk, right? Like, we're faking it. And we're like, yeah, you know, acting tough. Like, we don't want his business, but we secretly want it. You know, we're playing the chess game. And he's just like, do you mind if I take a look? And we're like, "Uh, yeah, you get a pass. So he takes a look. He puts in the order. He appreciated that we gave him the time. Wow. And it was all just about the way you market and brand this thing, right? And the next show, those other stores that we turned down, they were knocking even harder. I forget which store it was, but they were like, You won't show it to me? I'll write you a $200,000 order right now, sight unseen. And we're like, No. And on paper, as a business, that looks like a total fail, right? (laughs) Like we spent more doing the trip out to Vegas than we made (laughs) in three days. Like we spent more at the buffet than we made in three days. But to us, it was a huge win because that set us up for the next several years of trade shows where people were like, how do I get in? How do I see this? You have to be cool enough. And it's just about pivoting, using your weaknesses as strengths. Oh, you don't have enough product to show? Okay, now you're limited, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't deliver on time? Oh, you're making them wait. Now the demand is higher. Like everything that you think is... What makes your brand or your business weak is the coolest thing about it. I remember one of my friends who was working at Ford, you know, and he's just like, hey, I'm trying to figure out how to work brand at Ford. And how do I compete with a Tesla? Right. And I'm like, well, he, I'm like, what's wrong with Ford? He's like, ah, it's, we're just so old. I'm like, isn't that cool? You got 100 years of history, 100 years of heritage and storytelling. Like there's a lot of content there. That sounds pretty cool to me. Like, so if whatever your brand is and you're like, or your business and you're like, man, I'm not good enough here, not good enough here. It's like, that's why people will want you because there are more people like that than people who are attracted to, you know, whoever's winning at that point.
0: I love that. You see, here's the secret, taking your weakness and turning it into power. Bobby 100 still does that to this day, but nowadays it's online, in the new frontier of the internet. He uses words like Web3 and NFT. Not sure everybody knows what all those things fully mean, but because he's a trendsetter, he's using the lack of understanding to his advantage. That, after a quick break. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. This message comes from NPR sponsor, LinkedIn. This Black History Month, as we reflect on trailblazing historical figures, LinkedIn is also celebrating those working to build a better tomorrow. That's why they're sharing the journeys of Black entrepreneurs who started with a vision and then inspired and championed by the communities around them. They became success stories that inspire us all. Join the conversations happening on LinkedIn this month to learn more about Black founders who are charting a new path, LinkedIn, Welcome, professionals. You know, when I'm on air at ESPN, Bobby, I, I try to talk about the metaverse. I try to talk about certain aspects of NFTs and the floor pricing. And my contemporaries look at me like, what are you talking about? It, it just seems like it's <laughs> yeah. happening so fast. How, uh, how do you plan for that to be the next iteration of your business?
1: Yeah, it's already happening, right? So the last year, uh, we really pivoted to Web3 and uh, moving a lot of our emphasis on NFTs and just doing the education. And um, I think what appeals to me more than anything is that Web3 woke people up and NFTs woke people up to the realization that your life on the other side of the screen can be owned, can be uh, traded, can be... Ah, uh, designed and sold just like you would on the physical side. There is no distinction. You know, we've been very comfortable owning digital music. We've been very comfortable streaming Netflix movies instead of owning video cassettes for decades now. Um, we can get to a place where we understand that just because something is happening digitally doesn't mean it's not real. And so, you cannot say just because it's happening on the internet, it's fake. In fact, the reason why you think like that, and people did not think like that in Web One, right? In Web One, when I posted a photo on my blog, you know, I watermarked it and I said, I own that photo. That's mine. You can't use it. And then over the last 10 years, we have been more or less brainwashed to believe because the way that big tech set up social that all of the content they call it content, but it's really creation. They just use a new word to make it sterile and 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 really just corporate yeah. content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's your creation. So your photo, your photos, your captions, the art—that's all art that's coming from you genuinely as a human being. And now they're saying, "Hey, it's for free. It's democratized. It's, it doesn't belong to anyone." Well, that was a lie because they were owning it. Mm-hmm. And they were selling it to advertisers for eyeballs and clicks, and they got bigger and bigger. And you were just like, oh, all my content is for free. Well, it's not. It wasn't like that in web one. It wasn't like that before the internet. And it's definitely not going to be like that now, right? And so we're here to just try to help people understand that, that your digital life can be as meaningful and as real as your physical life. To me, one does not negate the other. I think they are In tandem, I think most people on earth are okay with the fact that the internet is going to exist and that we are going to do work on the internet. We are going to find our partners on the internet. We are going to socialize on the internet. We're okay with that. Okay, so if you're okay with that concept, why don't we take the time to make the internet? a little bit more interesting, (laughs) a little bit more fair and equal access. Why don't we make it so that the time that we spend on these meetings and on these calls and these Zooms is just in a better, more beautiful environment. Why is that a bad thing? Hmm. Why is it that when we're using apps to order our food that they are these sterile menus that we slide up and down? What if you can step into that room as a restaurant and order digitally and then the food can still come to your front door. Like, why does it need to stay at just being a flat app? I, d- I don't understand why people are okay with, okay, I'm cool with spending 70% of my day online, but I would rather just stay these really flat Zooms. And like, the texts I use are using all the same font and my DMs all look the same. I can't tell people apart. Like, why are you okay with that? All we're trying to do here is make the experience more human more unique and beautiful and complex. Like I'd much, if I'm going to spend 70% of my life on the screen, can I at least look at something beautiful? Like, why is that so bad?
0: (laughs) Bobby, can you explain to people what a non fungible token and NFT actually is? And then can you do the same to a degree with the metaverse? Because I, I don't think people really have context when they hear the terminology used, but they don't really understand it yet.
1: Yeah, that's totally fine. And, um, to be totally you know fair if you don't understand a lot of this stuff there's a reason for that no one really does (laughs) i think some people when they confront something that is kind of hard to figure out they you know they get they get scared they get intrigued uh, they laugh it off they they talk bad about it they insult it you know there's many reactions i i was the same way I, i came across nfts in uh 2020 and it, number one, it confused me and scared me. And then it kind of made me mad, right? Like going through all the levels of, of grief. <laughs> and then I was curious, you know, because I realized in my life that whenever something really scares me or makes me feel irrelevant, or I feel stupid, um, it actually makes me wonder. And um, what I learned, and this is this the definition as of now, but the beautiful thing about this is that we are... Still working on this definition, right? So we're doing this real time. You're watching history get made every minute of every day. NFTs are essentially just a token. It's a contract, really, that says that you own something online, on the internet, digitally, It is cemented in what is known as the blockchain. Mm -hmm. So if we write on the blockchain that you own this particular piece of art, this piece of digital art, even just a JPEG, then you are the rightful owner of that. And you can sell that NFT that says that you own that piece of art. Um, It's not unlike in the physical world. You know, I collect a lot of art, a lot of paintings, and they come with certificates. It's the same thing. That's like the very technical way of looking at it, but really NFTs are more or less digital goods, Um, but they can be art, they can be trading cards, right? So it's very confusing because right now NFTs are kind of used as a blanket statement. It'd be like saying like, oh, the internet is your Postmates app and it's also your email that you do for work. And it's also, um, you know, you posted a photo of your family on Instagram. Like, that's all the internet. How are those all the same thing? Well, it's just an umbrella term. So NFTs can be um, these pieces of art that are sold just one of one. They can be kind of trading cards or collectibles, which are probably the ones that you hear about the most because... They have limited supplies, and so there's higher demand for them, and the marketplace responds accordingly. And you can get some very expensive JPEGs of these kooky-looking cartoons. Um, They can be stocks, right? NFTs kind of behave like stocks, and art kind of behaves like stocks in a way, too, where uh, but just on a very slow scale. And so you're doing the same thing with NFTs. They're art that kind of behave like a stock. Because the trading happens so rapidly. Art, in historically, you have to go through galleries and auctions. And there's a lot of time in in between. We're just expediting that process. And art is trading hands like a a day trader would flip stocks all day. Um, But that's kind of what the definition in the media is of of NFTs right now. Um, What NFTs will mean in the future will continue to change. Right now, there's a lot of movement of NFTs kind of being like a loyalty rewards program. It can kind of be a membership pass. On our website, you can't access certain clothing without plugging in your NFT, right? And so there's a lot of utility and perks that now come with NFTs. Um, But they're just proof that you own something on the internet. I was meeting today when I got out of my car and I was talking to this kid who is a fan of ours. He's building a company where there's uh, physical little microchips that get sewn into your clothes, and so when you buy the clothes, you scan the chip on your phone, and it automatically is tethered to an NFT of that piece of clothing. So now you own the digital good wow. and you own the physical good at the same time. Wow, that's actually brilliant. Yeah, it, it's it's the coolest part of all this. You know, there's a lot of. Um, I mean, some of it's rightful, you know, there's a lot of criticism of NFTs and, you know, people like to make fun of it and and say this is all silly and stupid. But, you know, what's not silly and stupid to me is how fast people are imagining and creating. And I haven't seen this ever in my life. I don't know if we'll ever see it again. Uh, Just the climate around how creative people are being because it's almost like we opened an entirely new planet and we were like, you make up the rules here. You set up the government. You define what science is here. Like, you, you tell me what fashion is here. And so it's just like, not just a gold rush. Like, for some people, it's a gold rush, sure. Like, they're making a lot of crypto. But it seems to me, for, more, for me, you know, as just as much as many other creators and artists I know, it's just a gold rush of imagination, right like people are just running free with creative thought right now not restricted to the physical limitations or the system standards that we were subjected to before now we can do pretty much whatever we want and when you give humans that ability and that liberty like man it's been really amazing to watch it's hard to sleep you know, no one wants to go to bed at night because they're like, oh, I don't want to go to bed. I'm, I'm, I'm having such a fun time dreaming, and it works." You know, almost everything people work on, they're like, "Can I try this?" And I'm like, "That's never been done before. Do it." <laughs> and they're doing it, and we're about to launch something that doesn't exist either. Which you know, again, it's just like, why can't this be? You know, it's called the blockchain. and it's releasing over the next week. But it's a fully on-chain blog that every blog entry that I write. Will get minted on the blockchain, and Smart. I can, you know, sell it or trade it or do whatever I want with it. But it's now it's set in stone forever as the truth.
0: It's almost like a different subscription model, essentially. Somebody, hey, I would like to buy that. Be part of your blog moving forward. Yeah,
1: totally. Right. And so, um, you know, I never got paid off of my blog, you know, for the 20 years that I ran it. We ran ads very early on with like Apple and whenever and they paid us like nothing, and they made all the money for it. And now i can make the money off of the time and effort that i put into it or i can just use it you know i might not even sell them i might just do it just to say hey it's on the blockchain and it's there forever
0: i love that bobby thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and uh continue to kick ass man you're incredible
1: oh thanks jay that was great
0: that was my man bobby hundreds and man there's so much more to our conversation If you subscribe to The Limits Plus, you'll get a bonus episode later this week where Bobby tells me about his best friend and partner, Ben Hundreds, and how they kept expanding their brand for two decades. Plus, his cheat code for building a business. Be sure to check out Bobby's documentary about streetwear, Built to Fail. And shout out to his team for helping making this happen. The Limits is produced by Karen Kinney, Mano Sundarason, Lena Sunsgeri, Barton Girdwood, Brent Bachman, Rachel Neal, Yolanda Sanguini our executive producer is Anya Grundman music by Arab Louis. special thanks to Charlotte Riggi and Aaron Register let's keep it positive and let's keep it moving I'm Jay Williams